Chapter 12, Part 2 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 12 Discipline and Life of the Church. Part 2. When the world mingled with the Church, the question could scarcely fail sometimes to arise, can an organization be said to be the Church of Christ when not only many of its members, but some even of its priests, are leading lives which shew no trace of Christian holiness? Are the sacraments efficacious which are administered by impure hands? What amount of corruption in an existing Church justifies those of its members who desire purity in forming a separate society? Can anything justify separation? These were the questions which underlay the wretched conflict in the African church in the 4th and 5th centuries, though the controversy first arose on a special point, and that one which could not emerge except in an age of persecution. The schism referred to arose out of the last persecution, when they who delivered up the sacred books to the persecutors were stigmatized as, quote, traditors, unquote. Mansurius, bishop of Carthage, is said to have given up heretical books to the agents of the government instead of those which they sought, an act which to the more rigorous appeared an unworthy evasion. But he and his archdeacon Cecilian had probably given deeper offence by opposing the extravagant honours given to confessors, and the belief in the efficacy of relics. When Mansurius died, Cecilian was somewhat hastily elected as his successor by the bishops of the Carthaginian province only, and at once consecrated by Felix, bishop of Aptunga. As the bishop of Carthage had primatial jurisdiction over Numidia also, the bishops of that province were naturally aggrieved that the election had taken place without them. In their anger they declared that the newly consecrated bishop was almost a traditor, and that his consecrator was no better. The offer of Cecilian, to be re-consecrated by Numidian bishops if anything had been done irregularly, was received by them with scorn and contumely. Passion was already too hot to listen to the words of truth and soberness. They chose as bishop a reader named Majorinus, and, on his death in 315, Donatus, who headed the schism with so much zeal and ability that it came to be known by his name. Everywhere but in Africa, Sicilian was recognized as the legitimate bishop of Carthage. In Africa, the party which had chosen Majorinus, soon after the battle of the milvian bridge had made constantine master of western europe applied to him to name galician judges who might decide the question at issue between them and sicilian constantine was very unwilling to interfere in the affairs of the church but nevertheless named maternus of cologne Reticius of atun and marinus of arles to adjudicate these three with fifteen italian bishops met at rome under the presidency of the bishop of that city and finding that the charges were not proved fully acquitted sicilian to the dissident bishops the proposal was made that if they would return into the fold of the church each bishop should retain his office and that in a city where there were two bishops the senior should remain while for the other a see should be provided elsewhere when the synod broke up both sicilian and donatus were for a time detained in italy while two of its members were deputed to carry the official tidings of its decision into Africa. The Donatists were in no way appeased, but complained that their charge against Felix of Aptunga, the consecrator of Sicilian, had not been heard. 
He was accordingly brought before the proconsul at Carthage, and the falsehood of the charge against him made abundantly clear by the evidence of the imperial officials who had been concerned in the persecution. Further, the whole matter was referred to a council at Arles, the first ever called by imperial authority, which decided again in favor of Sicilian and against his accusers. The proposal which had been made in the previous year by the synod at Rome to Donatist bishops, who renounced their schism, was renewed. On the point specially at issue, it was laid down that an ordination by a traditor was valid, if the person ordained was duly qualified. It was also enacted, no doubt with a view to the Donatists, that false accusers should incur the penalty of excommunication, and declared that baptism in the name of the Holy Trinity was valid, even when conferred by a heretic. In these decisions as to ordination and baptism, the principle is of course affirmed that the sacraments are effectual because of Christ's institution and promise, though they be ministered by evil men. The Donatists were still dissatisfied, and again appealed to the emperor, who now determined to hear the parties in person. He sat for this purpose at Milan, and after hearing the pleadings on both sides, acquitted Sicilian and declared the charges against him to be calumnies. Constantine, however, soon became aware that the Donatists, far from respecting his sentence, were more active and aggressive than ever under their vigorous head, Donatus, quote, the Great, unquote, and was at last moved to take secular measures against them. He decreed that their churches should be taken from them, and their most distinguished bishops driven into exile. These measures roused the schismatics to fury, and probably first caused the formation of the bands of ruffians, who were afterwards so notorious under the name of Circumcellions. They did not fail also to try to gain the ear of the emperor, to whom they wrote, that they would never hold communion with his blackguard of a bishop, and requested full freedom for their worship and the recall of the banished Donatists. In a few years the emperor seems to have become convinced that it was impossible to crush the sect by violence, and that it was worth while to try the effect of gentle treatment. He repealed, therefore, all the edicts against them, permitted the return of their bishops, and declared in a rescript to his vicegerent in Africa that these frantic people must be left to the judgment of God. He also exhorted the Catholics to patience, which was indeed much required, as the schismatics not only behaved in the most outrageous manner towards them generally, but even drove them out of their own churches. Of any further measures of Constantine with reference to the Donatists we know nothing, but we know that in his lifetime they so increased and multiplied in Africa that, at a synod which they held in the year 330, two hundred and seventy bishops of their party were present. But outside Africa they found few adherents. We hear only of two Donatist congregations in Europe, one in Spain, the other in Rome. They seem to have been particularly anxious to establish themselves under the shadow of the Apostolic See, but here they were only able to hold a meeting on a hill outside the city, whence they were nicknamed Montenses, Campite, and Rupite. When Constans succeeded to that portion of the empire to which Africa belonged, and attempted to put down the Donatists, the Circumcellions burst out into new fury. Contemporary authorities describe them as gangs of fanatics, generally of the lowest class, who, misled by some of better condition, under pretense of extraordinary zeal, declined all honest labor and held a kind of communism. They begged or seized food, and led a vagabond life, haunting and plundering the farmers' barns and granaries, whence they derive the name by which they are best known. They called themselves agonistici, combatants for Christ. With the help of these sturdy marauders, the Donatist chiefs resisted the agents of the civil power, 
and not unfrequently seized the churches of the Catholics by main force. They often scoured the highways in great companies, treated those whom they met, especially priests of the Catholic party, with the greatest brutality, committed burglaries, and indulged in drunkenness and all kinds of violence. With all this they had a morbid longing for martyrdom. They interrupted the worship both of Christians and of pagans in the most outrageous manner, with the deliberate purpose of being killed by the incensed worshippers. Nay, it is even said that they bribed men to put them to death. Their war cry of, quote, Deo laudes, unquote, was heard with terror. This state of lawlessness continued, with some intermission, up to and during the time when Augustine was bishop of Hippo. It is not to be supposed that all the Donatists, many of whom were undoubtedly men of pure life, looked with favor upon the conduct of these vagabonds. Far from it. About the year 345, some of the Donatist bishops besought the imperial general Tarinus to put them down by force of arms, and he did his best to comply. About the year 343 died Cecilian of Carthage, whose election to the bishopric had been the beginning of strife. As, however, a Catholic, Gratus, was chosen to succeed him, the Donatists continued in schism. Africa was at this time in a wretched and impoverished condition, and the Circumcellian bands had probably been swelled by the addition of many whose principal desire was, at any rate, to get food. Constans, therefore, in 348, sent two commissioners, Paulus and Macarius, to that country to relieve the distress and to attempt the restoration of peace. But Donatus and other leaders of this party roused a rebellion, which compelled the commissioners to assert their authority by force, and so to bring about a state of things of which the Donatists bitterly complained. Macarius caused several to be executed, and others to be driven into exile, among the latter the great Donatus himself. The effect of these measures was, that so long as Constans and after him Constantius reigned, the Donatists were reduced to silence and secrecy. A change took place under Julian, who did not interfere in ecclesiastical quarrels, and allowed exiled ecclesiastics of all parties to return to their homes. Among these the Donatists returned, and the apostasy of their deliverer did not prevent the advocates of purity in the church from singing his praises. Donatus had died in exile, but Parmenian was chosen in his place as schismatical bishop of Carthage, and his followers, no longer repressed by the civil power, again committed all kinds of excess, and it was not until Valentinian I and Gratian came into power that measures were taken to repress them. After earlier edicts had failed, Gratian, in the year 378, issued an edict forbidding all assemblies of the Donatists and confiscating their churches. But their own divisions, which, says Augustine, were innumerable, were more injurious to them than imperial persecution. The first schism within the schism was formed by the learned Tychonius. He combated the two most characteristic tenets of his sect, that a church which tolerates sinners ceases to be a true church, and that those who come over from such a church should be rebaptized. He probably desired to bring about a reconciliation between the church and the schismatics, but he only incurred, as mediators usually do, the hatred of the leaders of his party. The Rogatians, the party of Rogatus, bishop of Cartena, who repudiated the Circumcellians, and were, says Augustine, the most moderate of the Donatist sects, shared the same fate. These appear to have been small parties, but other leaders attracted a larger following. Primian, who, on the death of Parmenian, about the year 392, became Donatist bishop of Carthage, very much relaxed the strict rule which had hitherto prevailed. 
and admitted to communion persons who were highly offensive to the more rigorous party. When these openly opposed him, they were themselves excommunicated. Among the excommunicated was a deacon called Maximian. A considerable number of the Donatus bishops sided with him, and, at a council held about the year 393, deposed Primian and chose Maximian in his place. Primian, however, resisted deposition, and a still more numerous council, held at Bagai, deposed Maximian, excommunicated him and his adherents, and declared Primian to be still bishop. After this, the Maximianists had to endure the most furious persecution at the hands of the main body of their fellow schismatics. While Donatism was torn by these internal struggles, Augustine became Bishop of Hippo and Honorius Emperor of the West. From the time when Augustine took charge of his diocese, where the Donatists were very numerous, he did not cease to attempt the conversion of the schismatics by treatises, by preaching, by conferences, by letters. At the same time, he set himself so to raise the standard of Christian life in his own community that the Puritans should have no excuse for remaining separate from it. In the local councils which were held under his influence, very easy conditions were offered to those schismatics who desired to return to the church, even so far as to permit their clergy to retain the positions which they had assumed. Few Donatus bishops were willing to engage in the conferences which he proposed. They not unnaturally shrank from meeting so powerful a disputant as the bishop of Hippo, face to face, and some preferred to calumniate him behind his back. Even a formal invitation to a conference which was put forth by a council at Carthage in the year 403 was flatly declined by the Donatists. They were in fact enraged by Augustine's success in making proselytes, and again broke out into acts of violence, which probably led to the edict of Honorius against those who disturbed religious services. Up to this time the Catholic bishops had abstained from invoking the secular arm against the schismatics. Augustine in particular had protested against it with some vehemence. The violence of the Donatists, however, at last induced them to have recourse even to this, and a synod at Carthage in the year 404 supplicated the emperor to put in force a law of Theodosius, which inflicted a heavy fine on frequenters of schismatical assemblies. Before, however, the deputies from the synod reached the emperor, he had already issued an edict punishing lay schismatics by fines and their clergy by banishment, and he soon after published a series of still more severe decrees, enjoining that the Donatists in particular should be deprived of their churches. Many conversions, or seeming conversions, followed, and thereupon another edict was issued in the year 407, in which, while free pardon was offered to those who returned to the church, the severest punishment was denounced against those who remained obdurate. In the year 409, however, the political circumstances of that disturbed time induced Honorius to change his policy and grant freedom in the practice of their religion to all parties alike, a toleration which lasted only a few months. About the same time when this edict was withdrawn, the Catholic bishops renewed their proposal of a conference, to be held under imperial authority. The emperor at once gave directions for such a conference to be held at Carthage, and in 411 sent the tribune Marcellinus to Africa as his commissioner to preside over the disputation and to decide in his name on the questions at issue. Marcellinus was a man of high character and a good Christian, but he had a fatal disqualification for the task which he had undertaken. He was an intimate friend of Augustine's, who had dedicated to him his great work on the city of God. It was therefore impossible for the Donatists, already suspicious, to accept him as an impartial judge in their cause. There flocked to Carthage 286 Catholic bishops and 279 Donatists. Each side chose seven representatives. 
On the Catholic side, Aurelian of Carthage and Augustine himself were the leaders in debate. On the side of the Donatists, Primian of Carthage, Petilian of Constantine, and Emeritus of Caesarea. Before the debate began, the Catholics declared formally in writing that if the Donatists could prove that the Church, except in the Donatist society, had utterly died out under the plague of sin, they would all submit themselves and resign their sees. If, on the other hand, they, the Catholics, should demonstrate that the Church of Christ dispersed throughout the world could not possibly have died out through the sins of some of its members, then it would be the duty of the Donatists to return to communion with the Church for the salvation of their souls, and they declared that in thus acting the bishops should not lose their office. On this the conference began, exactly one hundred years after the commencement of the schism, and continued three days. The Donatists, who at first objected to sit with the sinners, that is, with the Catholics, made various attempts to lead the discussion to subordinate questions, and it was not until the third day that they could be induced to face the question of principle, whether a church which tolerates sinners in the midst of it ceases to be a church, and the question of fact, who was the cause of the schism. With regard to the first, Augustine soon reduced the Donatists to silence. With regard to the second, the evidence of authentic contemporary documents so clearly proved the innocence of Cecilian and of Felix of Aptunga that Marcellinus gave a formal decision that the Catholics had proved their case on all points. A few days afterwards he issued an edict, under the powers of the emperor's commission, forbidding Donatists to hold any kind of religious meeting and commanding them to hand over their churches to the Catholics. The Donatists appealed to the emperor, but he confirmed the decision of his plenipotentiary, and in 412 put forth a new edict, inflicting heavy fines on the Donatists and banishment on their bishop if they continued in their schism. Many hundreds now returned in their terror to the church. Marcellinus, who had presided over the conference, himself fell under suspicion of treason and was executed in the year 413. But Honorius still proceeded against the Donatists, and in 414 published another edict, by which those of them who persisted in their schism were deprived of civil rights, and soon afterwards, in spite of the protest of Augustine, he forbade them to assemble for worship under pain of death. From this time the number of the Donatists began to diminish, though the emperor still thought it necessary to issue severe edicts against them. But in the year 428 North Africa was conquered by the Vandals, when Catholics and Donatists were lost in the Aryan cloud. Some small remnants seem, however, to have maintained themselves until their country fell in the 7th century under the dominion of the Syracans. There is no reason to doubt that the leaders of the Donatists were, however mistaken, men worthy of respect, and the principle for which they contended was a highly important one, no less than the purity of the Church of Christ. The Church, said a Donatist bishop, should be pure and undefiled. True, the Lord predicted that there should be tares among the wheat, but that was in the field of the world, not of the Church. Our opponents, said another, seem to regard the name, quote, Catholic, unquote, as belonging to certain nations or races, but that name properly belongs to a society in which the sacraments are administered with full efficacy, which is perfect, which is undefiled, not to races. They contended, in short, that the conception of Catholicism includes not only outward and visible connection with the Church, but a holiness of life worthy of a disciple of Christ, that the presence of the Spirit must be attested by the fruits of the Spirit, and this especially in the case of the ministers of the Church. So far well, but when, instead of trying to raise the standard of holiness within the Church, they constituted a society of their own outside it, virtually unchurching the rest of the world, their spiritual pride wrought its usual results. They became, quote, heady, high-minded, 
their moving principle came to be not desire for greater holiness but furious party spirit and contempt for their opponents st paul recognized the corrupt church of corinth as a christian church because he saw there the gospel taught and the sacraments duly administered the donatists were not content to acknowledge the church of carthage on these grounds to hold the sacraments invalid because administered by men whom a sect or party holds to be unworthy of their sacred office while they are not condemned by the legitimate ecclesiastical tribunals would be to cast a shade of uncertainty upon all sacred ministrations whatever few will hesitate to admit that st augustine was right in resisting the arrogant claim of a part of the community to pronounce who can and who cannot administer a valid sacrament but perhaps the worst effect of the donatist controversy was the appeal which resulted from it to the civil power to put down the schismatics by force the catholics had of course a right to require that the government of the country should preserve order protect its subjects from violence and secure them in the possession of their own buildings and other property there is no reason to suppose that augustine and his friends were animated by anything but a sincere desire for the good of the church but when they begged the emperor to put down the donatists as such by temporal penalties they entered on the way which led directly to the holy inquisition and the statute de heretico comburendo the office of inquisitor of the faith the name of which afterwards became so odious was actually instituted under theodosius end of chapter twelve part two